Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Dr. Cyan Proctor, who is a geoscientist, explorer, space artist, and astronaut. She was the mission pilot for the Inspiration for All Civilian Orbital Mission to Space, which you can watch in the Netflix documentary Countdown, and that's how I came in contact with Dr. Proctor, but she also was spent 21 years as a professor teaching geology, sustainability, and planetary science. So Dr. Proctor is a Renaissance woman, and in this conversation, we spoke about how her early years playing ice hockey impacted her, her getting into NFTs recently, and also about how she has remained curious and an explorer, really. So this was tremendously enjoyable for me, and I hope you have the same experience listening to it. If you have any thoughts about this episode, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda, and also please share it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. I'm incredibly grateful for you listening, and let's get right into the episode with Dr. Cyan Proctor. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Dr. Cyan Proctor, I'm so grateful for you coming here on this podcast. It's a real pleasure and honor. I watched Inspiration for the countdown and it was incredible. I reached out to you. I'm so happy we we finally made it happen now. Yeah, me too. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, let's start off with something not related to anything you've probably spoken about in recent podcasts, which is your ice hockey career. You played ice (laughs) hockey for 20 years and take me through that experience. You know, it's kind of funny because I grew up um, really into sports as a kid. I played baseball and basketball, and ice hockey was one of those things that I always loved. But because I grew up, I was living in New Hampshire, Nashua, and we had a pond. And every you know winter, it froze over, and so I would play hockey on the pond. But my parents wouldn't buy me hockey skates. I had figure skates, (laughs) even though I wanted hockey skates. And it just kind of wasn't the thing that girls could do back in the late, you know, the 70s and early 80s. But I always kind of admired it. And and then I I ended up being a track and field runner. I did Division II track and field in undergrad. And then when I moved to Arizona, of all places, I was in my mid-20s. And I said to myself, oh, I need a new sport. I don't, I don't want to run. <laughs> and, and I thought about it. And I also, I have to admit, I wanted to find guys to date. <laughs> so I thought about where could I go and meet guys and have fun and be athletic. And I thought, ice hockey. I'm going to learn to become an ice hockey player. And there was a rink down the road from Arizona State University and they had a learn to play ice hockey program. And I had started rollerblading and playing roller hockey by then. But I wanted to transition to ice. And I went and I literally took lessons on how to become an ice hockey player. And the coach, I, I have natural kind of like athletic ability. And the coach was like, 
hey, you should come play for my, you know, Bantam team, which are like 15 and 16 year olds. And I was like, how old do you think I am? <laughs> and, and it was really funny because he thought I was a teenager. And he said, if you really want to get good, you have to go play pickup hockey on this date with these guys. And literally it was nothing but guys. And I would come in and I was new and I pay my $10 and they wouldn't talk to me. I'd change in the locker room. They wouldn't talk to me. They didn't even acknowledge me. I'd sit on the bench and I would go out and I'd take my shift and I'd go up and down the ice as fast as I could trying to keep up with them. They'd never pass me the puck. And then I'd sit on the bench and I'd say, I paid my $10. I still belong here. I paid my $10. And I wore them dudes down. I came every single week until they started to get to know me. Then they started to pass the puck to me. Then I started getting my skills up. And, I, and within a year, I was able to you know, become a, a solid ice hockey player to the point where I joined the Arizona State Women's Ice Hockey Club team. And I ended up playing with them for four years while I was in grad school and being the captain of the team for two of those years. Incredible. So... Something that probably would have happened to a lot of people being the only female with a bunch of male in a male-dominated sport is you would have left. A lot of people would have left after the first session. What oh, made yeah. you keep going where it might have been un uncomfortable initially? Well, you know, I think part of that is this idea of belonging in spaces that you normally wouldn't have access to. And I remember sitting on that bench telling myself, I belong, I paid my money, I belong. And, and I had to do that again and again and again. And I think as a black female, you know, we, and, and people of color in general, and even women have had a history of having to tell themselves, I belong. Uh, and, you know, that's unfortunate. But in time, they accepted me as much as I, you know, wanted to be there. And, and I, I mean, it, it became to the point where if I didn't show up, they're like, where were you? You know, <laughs> um, and just hanging out and, and that support. But they needed to understand that uh, I needed to introduce this new idea of me being a part of their, their environment and what that looked like and how me coming into that space wasn't going to be as disruptive as they thought it would be for that, you know, that boys club, that, that, um, that space that, that they coveted. Are you yeah. an ice hockey player? No, I've never played ice hockey before, but I'm fascinated by your own journey. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that you, you also did was you met one of your favorite ice hockey players and it seemed like it was an Olympian of some sort. I saw a post it on Twitter and that's another example of maybe going to a space where you had to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. Is that true? And if so, what was that experience like meeting one of your favorite or favorite players? Yeah, it was really funny because I went to the Olympics in 2000, I think it was either two, maybe 2002, 2000, it was in Salt Lake City. And I had signed up for all these hockey games. I, I went to, as a spectator, not as, and I signed up for, you know, all these hockey games. And I got to go see the Canadian ice hockey team play the first night that they were playing. And, and I went to go get something to eat. And I remember I walked down from the arena to the food place, the first restaurant, 
And the guy said, we're closed. The Canadian ice hockey team is coming. And I looked at him like, did you just tell me the Canadian ice hockey team's coming here? And it was really funny because, you know, here I am, a black female. I have a Canadian Roots jersey on and I have this scarf with all of these hockey pins that I had collected for the Olympics and and, and a hat. and, And it was just me. And it was really interesting because I saw these three guys walking toward me and one of them was super tall and I walked up to him and I looked up at him and he looked down at me and I said, can I get my picture with you? And he looked down and he goes, why would, why would you want your picture with me? And I'm like, because you're Chris Pronger. And this big smile came on his face because he was like, wow, this girl, um, who knows who I am? And then the bus rolls up, and it's Shanahan and Iserman and Mario Lemieux, and Gretzky was the coach, and you're just like, your head is like, what is this? And it's just me. And and somebody who they would not have thought would want to be in that space, interacting with them and asking for their autograph and photo. And, and it was a lovely experience, I think, for me and for them to have that interaction. Let me ask you now, has anybody ever come up to you? I mean, it's only been, it hasn't been that long since you've been in space and haven't been out so much due to COVID, but I would bet the likelihood is high that over the course of your life, somebody is going to come up to you and say, are you Dr. Siam Proctor? Has that happened yet? Yes, it actually has happened. It's kind of funny. It first happened in 2010. I did a reality TV show on the Discovery Mm -hmm. Channel called The Colony. And I was surprised that people recognized me and were like, oh my goodness, you're from The Colony. You know, I love that show. And, And I... It was my first kind of like introduction to being recognized in public. But... Now, with Inspiration 4 and the Netflix series Countdown, it definitely happens a lot more where I walk into these situations and people are generally so happy to see me because they they just feel so connected to me and my story. I remember I was walking down the street of New York City and this older black female recognized me. I mean, I was, uh, I didn't even have inspiration for stuff on. And she's like, she stopped me. And she's like, Oh my goodness, you're, you're a Siam Proctor. And I just watched Netflix series. And I just had to tell you how much you impacted me and my life as a, you know, older black female. And I was just so touched by that, that she just, you know, that I, I had that impact on her and, uh, and, it's nice to know that people connected with me, my story, my journey as a seasoned individual achieving dreams. <laughs> incredible. It's incredible that you could go from being in the Olympics and and just watching your favorite hockey players and then 20 years later coming back and being recognized in that same way in in a different way but very similar and it's fascinating the circle of life from that perspective. Um, I want to ask about that journey, right? Let's cover the the 20 years in between the uh, seeing the Olympics and actually making your way to space. So you applied in that time, you applied to be an astronaut in 2009, right? Is that, that correct? That is correct. Yes. And, and you come short on your mission to actually become an astronaut. Take me through the emotions you feel 
what that is like in that moment where something you've been working hard towards your entire life, it seems like, gets taken from you. How do you deal with that situation? You know, it, it's actually kind of interesting because I, as a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I kind of saw my way to the stars through that lens. And then at 15, it evaporates because I get glasses and I and I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I was in the Civil Air Patrol. And I, I knew I couldn't be a military aviator. And, and then I thought, well, if I can't do that, I'll never be an astronaut. Um, and so I just kind of went off and lived my life as an explorer and a scientist and, and an athlete. And then in my late 30s, Somebody sent me an email, literally, that said, NASA's looking for astronauts, you should apply. And it's one of those moments, again, where you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you thought of me as an astronaut? Wow. And then you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. I don't even know how NASA selects astronauts. I had never looked it up because I just thought it was out of my reach. And then I looked at the qualifications and I was surprised that I met, you know, 95% of them. And, and then that's that moment where the imposter syndrome can say, you know, you, they'll never pick you in your head. You know, you're wasting your time applying versus, you know, that narrative, uh, how you have that conversation with yourself and you say, okay, no, okay, that may be true, but I, I, I can't make that decision. I need somebody else to make that decision. I'm going to put my name in. I'm going to apply and see what happens. And, and then in that process, it was a year long, um, I got you know, the first round interview and then the second round interview and then it's down to the yes, no phone call. And it was a no. And I just remember just feeling like, you know, again, the wind kind of getting knocked out because you go from not thinking it's an even possibility to applying and then suddenly they're looking at you and they're thinking about you. And then you start to believe you really have a shot that this could happen. And, and then all of a sudden, there's that no, and you're like, okay, I, I wasn't good enough. I, I need to make myself better. I need to reinvent myself. You know, I need to show them that I can do this. Uh, and, and you start to turn your life upside down. And, and I really had to stop and pause and say, whoa, I'm, I'm driving myself crazy because of this no. Instead, I just need to celebrate the fact that I was almost a NASA astronaut and figure out how to move forward and in a positive way that got me back to just being that explorer and enjoying life as a geoscientist. And that's when I became an analog astronaut. Hmm. I want to get into the analog astronaut, but first I want to ask about your friend. Your fr what do you think your friend saw in you to send you that email? That's a good question. I think the one thing is um, how you how you want to be perceived, the life that you live in the and the way you want to be perceived. And so for me, it was always about just sharing my love of science and exploration. And so I was I've always been an early adopter of technology. So I was on YouTube early. I had I was traveling around the world and I was blogging about it and and just sharing those experiences. And as a result of that, I got my pilot's license when I was 35. So, you know, I got my PhD when I and and so it, I think people saw me as somebody who was constantly learning and exploring and pushing the boundaries and, and then sharing that openly. 
And as a result, when that, that call for astronauts came out, they were like, that's cyan. And what a lovely thought, right? Yeah. Um, when I talk to students, I talk about how you uh, put your open, authentic self out there and the things that you want to do with life. And then you, you have people who help you along the way because they know you. And when opportunity comes, they think of you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And with the curiosity piece, the piece of you that's an early adopter to technology, what do you think that is and how do you cultivate that curiosity for new technologies? That's a good question. Well, you know, a lot of times when you're thinking about um, curiosity and uh, exploration and things like that, it's it's taking control of fear. And mm. And so my parents were fantastic. I, li- I grew up in an era where you ran free as a kid. <laughs> you went, you left in the morning in the summertime and you didn't have to come home until somebody told you your mom was calling for you. And that independence, that assurance that you could go out into the world and do things um, and, and, and explore. My dad always supported me as an independent uh kind of go-getter female as a, from an early age he encouraged me to go out and just um figure out what it is that I liked and why and and then he in, helped me to uh really get to know myself but it was it was in a way that it wasn't fear-based and I think that that was the big thing and um, because once you start getting afraid of our world, it causes you to kind of like um, be hesitant to take risk and opportunity. How did he help you get to know yourself better? If I, you know, I loved planes. So he took me to the model shop. I mean, early age. I mean, I'm talking six, seven Eight, taking me to model shops and buying me, pick out a model airplane (laughs) and glue. And he bought me books with airplanes in it. And then when I was old enough, he found the Civil Air Patrol. I didn't know it existed. And he's like, okay, you're thinking about a military career. You love Air Force. You know, there's an organization for kids called the Civil Air Patrol. Um, And he drove me every week to my meetings. So it was things like that that my dad did. He never told me that there was no female fighter pilots. I don't even know if he knew, but there weren't. <laughs> he never told me that there are any black females flying in, you know, in those kinds of spaces. Never once did he discourage me. Um, when I wanted a Rambo knife when I was 12 because Rambo was out, <laughs> he bought it for me. <laughs> he was that kind of dad. was like, oh yeah, you're even though you're a girl and all of that, eh, here's a Rambo knife. Go out in the woods and play. <laughs> Yeah, something I see so common in your story is the ability to go to places that other people haven't been, mm-hmm. which is true in the in the literal sense of going to space, but also just in how you've operated in your day-to-day with ice hockey and, and doing things that females weren't supposed to do, quote-unquote, or hadn't done yet. I and think my least, dad trailblazed that, and he did. Trailblazed. He had to do that himself, as you know. My both my parents grew up in segregation for the first half of their lives, and wow. then you know he had to go and um, blaze his own trail and go to places where he was the first, um, and and 
potentially the only black male. And I think that he didn't have, he wasn't afraid to do that. And as a result, I think he instilled that in me and my siblings to not be afraid to go out and do that. What do you recommend for somebody who hasn't had that type of upbringing to go and blaze their own trails or they see someone do something, but they say, I can't do that. That's for somebody else. Like, what do you tell that person? It starts with the conversation you're having with yourself because that, you know, I can't go do that is that imposter syndrome, that narrative. It's going to be there. I have that conversation with myself and, but that voice comes up, right. And says these things and, but you have to engage with that voice and have a conversation and say, well, wait a second. What is it that's is holding me back? Why do I not want to go there? What are my fears associated with this? And, um, and, and are they realistic? You know, what are the chances of this happening? And then what are the consequences if it does? You know, a lot of times the consequences uh, aren't as bad as we perceive them to be. You know, with getting the no from NASA, it didn't matter because I had this amazing experience. Like, yeah, I didn't get selected in the end, but the experience transformed my life. And, and it opened up new opportunities that I would not have had had I not applied. And that's one of the things that we, when we try to get these things and it's a no, it's, it still has enriched us a lot of times in ways that will pay off later. Yeah, the journey to the Super Bowl still impacts you deeply, even if you don't win it, which is yes. a, a fascinating concept. It um, is. <laughs> yeah, so take me through then just working and one of the most things that I'm fascinated by is Mars because I think Mars is going to be a conversation that people are having a lot in the next decade, next two decades of like, wow, we are on Mars. Wow, we're we're colonizing Mars. And I think it's going to happen in our lifetime. Is that true from your perspective? And also, please highlight the incredible work you've done to as as somebody thinking about Mars way before the general public has thus far. Yes, so uh, I do believe that we'll have footprints on both the Moon and Mars in my lifetime, and I'm excited for the potential of being a part of that history in some way, whether it's by supporting and championing it by here on Earth or eventually being getting the opportunity to go and to help make that movement happen. Um, and so I became an analog astronaut, and I'm going to grab my book. An analog astronaut is somebody who lives in moon and Mars simulations, so this is the high seas habitat on the big island of Hawaii. So and cool. in 2013, they basically put out a call looking for individuals to go and live as subject matter, you know, in the, you know, I guess as researcher, not researchers, you could research, but as people that others research in this environment and see how you do for four months to investigate food strategies for long duration space flight for NASA. So it was NASA funded and they put out this call on the internet. And again, this is early, you know, kind of internet days of social media. And a friend of mine sent me a note saying, you love food and you love space. You should apply for this. And I was like, I do love food and I do love space. I'm going to apply to live in a Mars simulation for four months. And I got selected and, um, and it was a wonderful experience. 
and because I knew that I was helping to advance human spaceflight, but here on Earth, and that's what analog astronauts do. They are people who aren't associated necessarily with a agency like NASA or, or JAXA or ESA or the Canadian Space Agency. They're individuals who love space and and a lot of them want to be astronauts, um, but it's so difficult to become an astronaut. You have to be the best of the best of the best. <laughs> and and so this is a way that they can contribute um, here on Earth and while they get themselves flight ready for opportunity. What are some of the challenges will face on our way to colonize Mars? Well, and, and I'm going to say settle, <laughs> settle Mars, um, just because colonization, again, I think part of that is termination, term, uh, terminology, how we use and think about that, because we get to write the narrative of human spaceflight right now. And we can do it in a really thoughtful way. And one of the things that I think about is that Jedi space, a just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive space. How do we make our pursuit of Mars that Jedi space? Because we have the, the, the history to look back at. We, have, we can look back at how we have not done that and how we have been, but we can't rewrite that narrative but we can look into the future and say well how do we want to move forward and then as we're starting to send earth earthlings among the stars how do we do that with intention and then a lot of times we're not we're just not having these conversations enough with the people who are making the, the decisions the gatekeepers the people who are at the top picking who is going to go and what that's going to look like and so I think that that's an important conversation to have now, because if we don't plan now, then we'll never make that Star Trek um, notion, you know, that generation, that, that collective of all of us working together. Yeah. Um, so you said before that you didn't think that civilians would be going to space in the next, in 10 years. And yeah, this when was, I... <laughs> yeah. So it's, well... it's interesting. Go for it. It came faster than I thought. So I, in 20, just before COVID, in 2019, I think it was, NASA announced a new selection process. And I was 49. And people were asking me, are you going to apply? Are you going to apply? Are you going to apply? And I was like, no, you know, I don't think NASA, I'm too old. Um, They never, they would never consider me. And, and then I would say, but... Maybe commercial space one day. And in my mind, I'm thinking, eh, you know, this is a decade off before commercial space is going to be happening really kind of to the point where I could be a part of it. And then, you know, like that, it changed. And, and I'm still in shock that it changed so quickly. But I think that that's that exponential growth, you know, going into the digital technology, um, thinking about how that has changed the access to knowledge and the distribution of information and the the ability to compute and um, process and build and imagine. 
And as a result of that, we're on this accelerated race um, that is enabling us to do things quicker, faster, more efficient. Uh, And the question is, can we keep up with that um, and do it in a way that is very mindful of, you know, where we want humanity to go and what does it mean? How does that improve life here on Earth? Because there's no better planet than Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, so when you look at Mars in general, when you look at settling on Mars, what is, what are some of the things that would make it for the best possible outcome where we're sitting here currently today? Oh, well, I think the best possible outcome is, again, if we strive for that Jedi space, just, equitable, diverse, inclusive, that means that we start here by trying to have a conversation globally about how we can bring everybody, um, you know, humanity to Mars. And, and so access, training, all of those things, um, who do we want to send as our first ambassadors and why? And we, and, and really kind of strip away the political side of that, of this idea of competition and conquering and it, from a nationalistic standpoint. And so if we could do that, that would be a huge step forward in, um, moving, uh, moving that narrative. And then, you know, when we're thinking about, the challenges of living on Mars from a food, water, energy, shelter, um, waste management, all of those things, those technologies that need to be developed for us to be able to go there and, and not only survive, but thrive to some extent. Um, those are the technologies that we mindfully say are going to help us become efficient in all of those areas on earth because those are the things that we have the most challenges with energy water you know food distribution shelter um you know and and so we if we can kind of parallel those things that solving for space solves for earth then and be really thoughtful of it again wrapped in this jedi space then i think that's how we move forward in a productive way have you are you familiar with tim urban from wait but why no, I'm not. He's an incredible writer who's studied Elon and Elon Musk and has recently done a podcast with Lex Friedman, which is a, another great podcaster and, and scientist. Yeah, I know Lex Friedman. Yeah. Yeah, and so he was he he has such a interesting approach to Mars and and how he's just a writer and a commentator, mm-hmm. but um I think his work is definitely worth checking out on this topic. But back to you. I'd love to go deeper into the statement of you learned how to be more forgiving of yourself through the process of going to space. Take me through that statement of being more forgiving to yourself and how exactly you learned that. Well, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, You know, I've always been, as the person who is trailblazing these new territories, you know, take, for example, learning to play hockey and sitting there on that bench and telling myself I belong, knowing that if I give up or and, and I don't succeed, then I'm closing the door for those to follow. Mm-hmm. And and being able to be strong in, in, in these spaces and you have good days and you have bad days and 
I mean, I was 51 when I found out I was going to space and was going to be the mission pilot. And, and I believe in lifelong learning and that endeavor. And, but I had to tell myself because I, I suffer from imposter syndrome that, okay, I can do this. You know, it's not going to be easy, but I can do this and I, and I'm going to have to work hard, but I'm not, I, not only am I going to have to work hard, but because I'm a black female, I'm going to have to work twice as hard as my counterparts. And that's the thing that, um, privilege doesn't see people from a privileged platform just, they don't see how hard people of color have to work to be accepted in these spaces and the narratives that we have to go through in order to achieve this because they don't have to do that. Um, And that's what's interesting, I think, is how how you can figure out ways to survive in spaces that are foreign. <laughs> I think that's the best way to do it. New territory. And that's a form of exploration, right? And, and unleashing the explorer within. And so for me, I knew it was going to be tough. I knew I had to be, you know, always on. I was guarded kind of to an extent, enjoying the process and stuff like that and, and loving every moment of it, but also very mindful that if I mess this up, if I'm not successful at becoming the first black female pilot of a spacecraft, then everybody's going to be like, well, you know, she couldn't make it. She couldn't do it, you know, and whether they label that as me as a female or me as a black female, it doesn't matter. It's that, that optics that comes along with it. And so I, as along the way, I was reading, you know, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, and, um, well, listening to the podcast, uh, the audio book, and thinking about my becoming moment, and thinking about how I just need to give myself space to um, be forgiving if I have a bad day, or if I feel like I messed up, and, um, or if I feel like I'm not um, connecting the way I want to. So those are the things that I've learned to do. And by the time we got about a week before liftoff is when I finally said, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. And, and I kind of, you know, I could feel that. Um, I, cause you, even though we won our seat, SpaceX and inspiration Four made it very clear that we won our seat, but we had to earn our spot. And if we didn't, I had to qualify as a mission pilot, you know, SpaceX had to say, you have learned what you needed to do to be successful, to go out there and, and do your job. And so I had to prove to myself and to them and to some extent the world that, yep, you can take a, a seasoned black female <laughs> and, and she can do this. Um, don't be afraid to reach outside of your normal comfort zone and, and choose the best of the best. Um, you can choose people who you normally wouldn't pick, uh, and bring them on this journey and transform their lives. And they're not going to, they're not going to let you down. (laughs) And you mentioned Michelle Obama and you actually got a chance to speak to her, right? I did, and it's captured in the Netflix documentary. She's amazing. Um, the Obamas, I, I flew Obama's coin with me, you know, and uh, a couple of them so I could give him one. And it was such a magical moment because you rarely get to thank the people who have influenced you 
And so this was a moment for me to say thank you. As I become somebody who has now a global platform to be able to go out and inspire, it was nice to be able to say, you inspired me, and, uh, and this is how, and thank you for that. And so I got, to see, I got to talk to her before Liftoff, and what a lot of people don't know, because it's not in the Netflix documentary, is that I got to talk to my favorite um, musical artist while in space also for about 18 minutes. And that is, and this is what's funny, um, is it's Bono from U2. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because I've been to a lot of Bono concerts, uh, well, U2 concerts, and I'm like looking around and I'm like, oh, there's another black person way over there. <laughs> and so it's funny because uh, I, I've been at those concerts where people are kind of like, oh, wow, there's a black female here. And you're like, yeah, I, I like you too. They're awesome. I've seen them multiple yeah. times. <laughs> it, it's fascinating because, you know, we think about the people who inspire us and the people who we look to for for guidance in any way. But when you look from space, is it a feeling of like, wow, this is just all one collective. This is just one one earthling, right? Like, Oh, I yeah. think we so often think of ourselves as, oh, I'm an American or, oh, I'm, I'm from this culture or that culture. But it's like we're all from Earth. And like when you probably have a greater perspective of that than anyone. Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny because I definitely feel that we are on Starship Earth and yeah. humanity needs to unite as one. And the quicker we do that, the better off we will be. But that all comes down to the distribution of resources and power and um, how we see that the use for that. Uh, and conversations need to be had around that. Um, and I think that that's why space exploration is so interesting because and science fiction. Because science fiction allows us to imagine a world of possibilities and then, you know, the... Our pursuit of that is what brings us to moon, Mars, and beyond. And and so when I think about how um, that view from Earth and how we're all in it together, all of our actions and what we do are going to make a difference, I think that I wish that everybody could experience it. I think that we would get along better if we could get that perspective. You know, that's that overview effect. And one of the reasons why I think that the overview effect is so powerful is on the front of my cover here for my book um, is earth light, being bathed in earth light. And that my analogy to that is when you go out at night and it's a full moon, Think about how that makes you feel. For instance, when you go out and it's a full moon and it's rising, how do you feel? Full of light, full of energy. Like, wow, this is incredible. Right. And it, and it makes you feel so connected to the moon, right? Yeah. In that way. Well, earth light is a thousand times brighter and more brilliant and more beautiful than moonlight. And so to be up there and to, you know, be bathed in earth light and to have that experience of knowing that the earth is alive and it's pulsating with energy and hopes and dreams and history and all of those things um, just makes you feel like uh, we can do this if we can get that 
kind of perspective. Mm. You know, we've been talking about so many places where you maybe have felt uncomfortable at first or felt like an imposter, like playing ice hockey with boys or going to space, you know, not that's probably an uncomfortable position for a lot of people. But talk to me about the places you're most comfortable, the, the places you're most accepted, the places where you feel like, wow, I really belong here. What are those places for Dr. Proctor? You know, and that's a great question because I've always been on the edge as a trailblazer. You know, the only black female in my classes, the um, black female geoscientist. <laughs> Let me tell you that, that. Talk about needing some diversity, right? Um, but these are areas that I have been my entire life. And I really believe that I finally found my place as an artist and a poet. And that's one of the reasons why when I applied to, I put my name in to win the prosperity seat, it was as an artist and a poet and not as a geoscientist or, you know, an analog astronaut. Um, because I feel really connected when I am creating my art, um, the stuff that's behind me, you know, whether it's collage art, drawing, painting, um, Afro-Gaia, my characters, Afro-Gaia, Afrobotica, Afro-Not, you know, having that Afrofuturism lens and uh, being able to add poetry to it and, and put my voice uh, and share my thoughts about the future of humanity and why we need to... Um, make changes. And so I feel really good that I, you know, I, I won my seat to space with a poem called Space to Inspire. <laughs> and and it and, and talks about um, why they should send me, but why they should send a poet and an artist and why we should strive for a Jedi space and why um, science, technology, engineering, and math plus the arts are the way to go. And speaking of poetry, you've got a beautiful poem. I think it's called Seeker, which sold for over a hundred thousand dollars. What? Yeah. What, could, could you read that for us? Uh, that was incredible when I heard you. Oh, it really got me. So. So this yeah. is Seeker. I I actually created Seeker before I knew I was going to space. It was actually around this time. Um, it was mid February. Richard Garriott. I mean, uh, yeah, Richard Garriott was going down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench with um, down the Challenger Deep, the deepest part in a submersible. And he was taking art and poetry with him. And I got connected with him through Twitter again. And so I drew this uh, because I was born on Guam. The Mariana, Guam sits on the Mariana Trench. And, and so I felt like I was coming home to some ex ex extent and then this is my character, Afrogaia. And so this is Mother Earth. And so the water, the trench, you know, the land below the ocean, the her hair radiating out as sunlight and life. And I just felt like, wow, this is really kind of a, a, an example of us as explorers and going to places that we never imagined we'd be able to go. And so the type of poem that he was requesting was a sin queen. I had to look it up. I'm like, wait, what kind of poem is this? And it's a syllabi based poem where it's two, it's five lines and it's two syllabi, four, six, eight, and then two syllabi. And so seeker, why go? Because I can. 
It's what humans do. We explore, we observe, we learn. Seeker. Beautiful. Yeah, I love it. And so I, you know, it went down to the Mariana Trench with a astronaut, Richard Garriott, went to space, to the International Space Station on a Soyuz rocket. And then this piece, the original piece, went down to the Titanic with another astronaut friend of mine, Scott Parazinski, and his wife. And, um, and then both of them signed the back of it. And then it went to space with me. And all of my crew members signed the back of it. And then I donated it to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where it sold for $100,000 at auction. Incredible. Incredible. And I should I mean, say that the digital version is right now available as an NFT on wow. nft.goingtospace.com. So if you're into NFTs and collecting space, this is a piece of space history. <laughs> yeah, so you bring up NFTs and it's one thing I want to talk to you about. It's another area where instead of saying no to an early technology, you said yes to it. So take me through how you discovered it um, and then... Like why you say yes when it is easier and many more people say no. Wow, that's that's very insightful. It, again, it was because of inspiration for uh, one of the people that I'd met before that because of Yuri's Night um, was Kyle Schimber and he has a company called Subtractive and Subtractive does the live streams for SpaceX in a sense that they do the technical back end of the live streams. And, and they also provide the music. Um, Test Shot Starfish does the music for all of the space launches for SpaceX. And, and so I ran into Kyle on, in the hallways while training for SpaceX and we kind of got reconnected. And he, you know, he knew that we were doing a $200 million fundraiser for St. Jude and he was getting into the NFT space. And he said, well, why don't we do, you know, NFT, an NFT auction while you're in orbit? You know, we will ask artists to get, donate one of ones, original one of ones, and we will put them up. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is great. So I created an NFT and a bunch of really amazing artists, um, Nicole Stott, who is an artist, astronaut, who inspired me to paint in space. Uh, Ron Guerin um, also donated a piece. And so you had all these amazing people come together. And, and then Kyle was like, okay, well, why don't you take NFTs to space with you? And he had this wonderful project called The Mutniks at CosmicPaws.io. And it's all about the first dogs that went to space and how they trailblazed the way before Yuri Gagarin got to go. And they're kind of a little bit lost to history. And so this was a way to bring them back and create the Mudiverse (laughs) and be able to give agency um, to something that had happened in history. And so I just found that all fascinating that you can claim space in the digital space and, and put your art out there and your music and have it, you know, identified to you. Uh, and, and you can put it out there and make money as part of that, but you also create a legacy that's traceable because it's on the blockchain. And you can have utility associated to that because you are raising money um, or you're making money in that experience. And so what I mean by utility is that it it has some value in the real world. Um, And for example, you know, the Mutniks, 
when the money that they part of the money that they raise goes to actually helping um, dogs in the real world. And then when you think about, you know, us doing an NFT auction while we were in orbit, we raised over 400000 for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So, again, utility where it's going toward helping people, you know, helping to end childhood cancer. Mm. And so I like to look for projects that, you, that intrigue me. And both my master's and PhD were about digital space. And so my master's back way back in the 90s, mid 90s, I created Volcano Island, a virtual field trip in geology. And so it was all about creating a virtual world in the mid 90s. Now I just wish I'd stuck with it because, (laughs) you know, we have the metaverse and uh, and it's so funny that but both my master's and PhD were all about teaching with technology. It's it's so fascinating because it's like people on the cutting edge in one field, you're on the cutting edge in space. It's like you're also on the cutting edge in technology, which is is really cool to see and it it transfers over and you were also on the cutting edge with Twitter, use, utilizing Twitter back in, you know, early 2010s. It's like you see this common pattern with people who are curious, who are interested in what's going on, what's going to be the future like. Like I think I think the similarity is that between all those fields is like innate curiosity, innate willing to look dumb or be in an arena you're not quote unquote supposed to be and pushing the boundaries on knowledge and exploration. Does that resonate Absolutely. for you? Yeah, and I consider myself an explorer in all those spaces, but it's funny because being an early adopter um, doesn't necessarily lead equal to success. So, for example, I was on Twitter in 2008, and I'm blogging and I'm doing all these things, but I was ahead of the curve. And yeah. and so I kind of was like, eh, you know, I'm not sure how to use this space effectively. And so by the time Inspiration4 came along in 2020, I had only 6,000 followers uh, you know, and so you're like, even though I've done 14,000 tweets and, and so it's interesting to look at things where like you can take me and my I4 colleagues, um, you know, I came in, I was in Twitter, 6,000 followers and, uh, and I applied for the prosperity seat, which was a Twitter contest and I won that. And then they came in zero followers, right? And, and here we go through the same experience and, by the time we get to the end, they all have twice as many followers on Twitter than me. So what does that tell you about um, this kind of idea as a, as a black female working twice as hard uh, to be kind of like in that space and be recognized and be accepted and all of those kinds of things? Interesting. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to frame it. I'm curious about the, you know, you mentioned being an explorer and that being so core to your identity. I'm curious if you've explored the inner world at all, like in terms of meditation or spirituality. Absolutely. You know, uh, meditation is one of the things that it's a work in progress. That's the (laughs) best way for me to describe it. But I always have an inner dialogue going on with myself. In fact, I'm an introvert by nature. And, uh, and so I am very fascinated with the, you know, us here and, and what, our mind is versus our soul versus our our flesh and bone and how are those things interacting with time and space 
uh, and and what is the meaning behind all of this, you know, as a scientist and to some ex- extent a skeptic. Yeah, I am. I love all of that. And I feel like I'm now in a space to be able to explore that even more because I was so... Um, I was looking for opportunity. It's kind of the, and this is where I think when we talk about time and space and the way we feel about ourselves and our connections to our future selves, I'm one who I'm convinced that I have dreamt my future and whether we manifest our future through our thoughts and our actions or whether our future exists and time is not linear and we can tap into that through um, our dreams, our experiences I can't, I don't know, which is, and whether it matters one or the other, but when I got inspiration for everything clicked into place where I was like, oh my goodness, as a kid, nobody could explain why I liked airplanes, military airplanes, you know, very specific and wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. My dad worked for NASA, but he had stopped when I was born and was into computers and all these other things. And he never really even talked about NASA. His, the memorabilia was on the wall, but he had already moved on and, and it was into new things and other spaces. But for me, you know, I loved aviation and being a pilot um, was a quest. I wanted to go to space. And the one thing that I drew consistently was a dragon. <laughs> That's the only thing that I, I used to doodle dragons. And I was like, no oh, way. you know, dragons. Yeah. And then when I opened up my prosperity seat, um, yeah, I mean, my not my prosperity seat, but when I became an entrepreneur back in 2005 and opened up my LLC, Literally, Size Creations is the name of my, my company, and I drew a dragon next to it, and, and, I, and I created that company as a game designer. And then I get Inspiration 4, where I'm the pilot of a spacecraft, um, a dragon capsule. I'm like, wait, what? But I felt like my entire life, I was turning over rocks and saying, is this the right opportunity? Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? As an explorer, kind of looking for that thing. And then finally... There it was, Inspiration 4. And I was like, ooh, wow, okay. That only took 51 years to happen, but this is great. <laughs> and so so now I'm kind of like, I, t- I talk about when the capsule came down and we had Splashdown, how it was like my Phoenix Rising moment, my becoming, where I'm like, okay, I have just become the first black female pilot of a spacecraft. Check. <laughs> what do I want to do now? And so that whole idea of inner reflection and um, processing the journey and what it all means and creating this kind of like uh, sharing these thoughts with everybody and hopefully uh, having the platform that I, I have, having these conversations. It's, it's fascinating because what strikes to me right away is the idea of like every moment had to be what it was for you to get to that point at 51 where you're like, wow, like I've become, I've arrived, but like you were becoming, you were arriving in every moment prior to that as well. Right. Like, yep. Go for it. That's what I tell students, you know, that all of these little moments, all of these zigs and sags that you have in your career, um, they add up, uh, and they, they complement each other in ways that you don't realize until further down the road. And so when I graduated from undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had my environmental science degree, 
And my father had already passed away from lung cancer. I moved home to live with my mom. And I became a video editor for the news. And that's how I learned to edit videos and do that kind of stuff and, and, and be able to create my YouTube channel. And again, not many followers, but put a lot of YouTube videos up there. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 it's, and, and it's like when someone discovers you in 2021, they now have this huge backlog and catalog of, of Cyan Proctor videos to explore. They do. And it's funny because the one of the things my dad always said that I was a, um, what is it? Jack of all trades, master of nothing. He was so concerned that I was always kind of like into everything. And he's like, you need to settle down and become a master in something. And I remember that kind of haunted me for a long time because he passed away when I was 19 and, and I was off in college and I'm like, why, you know, and I was taking all these different classes and trying all these different things because I just love new opportunities and new ways of learning and investigating. And, and I realized that I'm, I am that, but what I really am is I'm a, a jack of all opportunities, master of life experiences. And so I had to reframe that, that phrase that my dad had and he, cause he was so worried about me succeeding at, if I didn't like, master one thing. And so I think he would chuckle at the fact that, you know, I have turned out in this wonderful way. (laughs) Well, that is in part why your crewmates gave you the nickname Leo, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Leo, um, my call sign. And so we get our call sign. Well, we got them when we went through a fighter fighter training weekend and you know you sit in a chair and people shout out basically ideas of what they think your call sign should be and somebody said Picasso she's an artist and then another guy slick stood up and goes no she is a modern day renaissance woman she combines science and art she is a Leonardo da Vinci so I say she's Leo <laughs> and everybody went, whoa, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how I became Leo for Leonardo da Vinci. That's so cool. And, but that speaks to your curiosities about everything oh, and, mm-hmm. and it, and it perfectly encapsulates it in, in, uh, two syllables. So <laughs> th- that's, uh, it's incredible. Now I know you're one of the things you're thinking about recently is jumping out of a plane. Why is that on your mind and why are you so fascinated with diving out of a, a plane up in the a perfectly air? perfectly good airplane. Yeah, exactly. the pilot perfectly good. what you don't want to do. You know, it was funny because um, way back when I was getting my pilot's license, I was dating a, a guy who had his own plane. And it's, um, it's, it's a, a form kind of like a yak. It's out of um, China and it's a Nan, Nanchang high-end sea and it low wing, you know, kind of, it looks like a World War II uh, plane. And it's kind of funny because you, you had to put in your parachute and if something went wrong, you, you know, opened up the canopy and you jumped out on the wing and then, you, you know, and you hope for the best, you had to pull you you know, pull this. And, and so I, I always thought, well, isn't that kind of interesting when you've never actually jumped out of a plane? If you had an emergency and had to get out of the plane, you know, you're, you're relying on yourself to actually pull your own chute. And I thought one day I ought to actually jump out of a plane so I know what that's like. And, and so I was going to do that for my 50th birthday and then COVID happened. 
And, and so it just all kind of been derailed. And so it's something that I definitely want to do. And it's interesting. You have no fear of heights or anything like that. Um, oh, no. I, I have a healthy respect for heights. And <laughs> I've got to the point it. where now I can't be on the edge. Like when I was younger, I could be on the edge of a cliff as a geoscientist. But now when I get close to the edge, oh, boy, my knees buckle and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, pull me back in. I remember climbing to the top of Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. And, you know, you scale the last 800 feet of the dome and then you can go and look over the edge. And my one friend stood and kind of looked over. I crawled and then I peeked my head over and then I rolled back and been like, OK, that's enough. <laughs> and, I, and even when I hiked the Grand Canyon, you know, um, especially I did rim to rim of the Grand Canyon in the north side. It's steep and you have the cliff face and then you have the wall. And I'm like, walk next to the wall. <laughs> So I have a healthy fear of heights, but it doesn't stop me from doing things. I bungee jumped, you know, uh, the idea of jumping out of an airplane, because it's all about calculated risks. And what does that mean? Yeah, it's, uh, I I heard you say in a previous podcast, like, oh, I don't have a fear of heights. But uh, yeah, no, that that explanation makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Uh, Can, can you uh, take us through what it was like to meet Elon Musk. I'm sure you get asked about this all the time and it was captured on the film. But what was going through your head, like knowing that this person has done a lot for space exploration as well as the things we're doing in uh, just the regular regular world of Earth? You know, I, I it was awesome because I had followed him for a while And you just have this respect for what he's trying to do. And you're just like, well, does he want to talk to me? (laughs) And so it's kind of funny because a lot of people think that Elon um, kind of interacted with us a lot. But he didn't. Him and Jarrett interact. You know, Mm -hmm. that's on a whole different scale. And, and so on Twitter, he doesn't even follow, he doesn't follow me on Twitter. (laughs) I'm like, I think, you know, he kind of knows who I am because he watched the Netflix documentary and I've met him three times. The first time was when the day of liftoff, I mean, he basically was there uh, and he, it's in the Netflix documentary and it was very brief because COVID and all of that. And so we got to kind of say, Hey, Hey, and he's like, Good luck, you know, go out there and uh, do good and, and, and have, you know, be successful. And, and so it was really kind of brief and I didn't get to like, get into it with him. And then, but he came to our splashdown party and that was the longest conversation I got to have with him because he came for about a half hour and it was me, Haley and Chris and then him. And we're kind of like in the some the circle and he was right next to me. And so I got to ask him, I was like, were you afraid or worried for us? And it was really funny because he kind of, you know, he did this kind of thing of thinking. And then he was like, um, yeah, you know, he was very <laughs> honest about, you know, there, there's risk. And, and I wasn't sure. And, and I'm just, you know, he was genuinely happy that it all went well, not just for us as individuals um, and life, but also obviously for his company, because anytime something goes wrong um, that involves humans, it's, you know, devastating and, and it sets the industry back. Um, 
And that, but that those are the risks we're willing to take, right? Um, in order for the pursuit of this bigger endeavor. And then the last time I met him was at Time Magazine's Person of the Year uh, Award. And, you know, he came out on stage and talked and then he was leaving and I thought he had left. And so we we were out in the audience kind of listening and I went to go use the bathroom and then he came and I ran into him and, and I stopped and he, and they stopped because he had his people around him and, and he looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, um, and I said, congratulations. And he said, it's lovely to see you again. And he kissed me on the cheek and then he whisked off. <laughs> so that's, those are my three and only three interactions I've ever had with Elon. <laughs> but far, I would love to have more. <laughs> something tells me if, if you're, you're on your way to Mars, which uh, it seems like from my perspective that you're one of the most qualified people in the world to do, you'll have more interactions with him in the coming decade or two, uh, God willing. Um, take me through Gryffindor. Why are you in the house of Gryffindor? And what is th- uh, this uh, this test that you gave Jared or, or the rest of your, your crewmates? Well, you know, it's one of the things when you start becoming family, you start to talk about the things that you love, you know. And a lot of people who are in the space are into sci-fi and, you know, are you Star Trek or are you Star Wars, you know. Um, those kinds of things come up. And I've always loved Harry Potter. I read all the books, saw the movies, and so and so hadn't Chris and Haley. So it was really funny because the three of us knew our, our houses. But Jared was like, Harry Potter, you know? <laughs> He's like, Game of Thrones, you know? And we're like, but Harry Potter has dragons. And so you know, because we had known our houses, and it was one of those things where we're like, Jared, you have to take the, the Pottermore test, and we need to know what house you're in. And so, of course, you, you want to be a Gryffindor. Um, I thought I was going to come out Ravenclaw. And say? and so I was pleasantly surprised to become Gryffindor. And and then Jared, I would have thought, might have been a Ravenclaw. But he also came out Gryffindor. But I can see that because Gryffindor is about um, doing good but also having choice, you know, agency in how you do that. You know, Harry had the the decision of where he wanted to go and he could have been Slytherin. Um, and, you know, you have all of the different houses in you. But with him, he would, you know, I, what I love about that is Gryffindor has this kind of like um, noble sense about it in a, fen- in a sense that they have the right, they make decisions um, for doing good or bad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of mischief in there, but always on the lens of trying to help others and trying to make a difference. And when you look at Inspiration 4 and what Jared did and, and making it um, not only about him going to space, but bringing, you know, a diverse group of people with him on this first journey, and then also raising 200, over 200 million for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. When you look back at that experience, and even today, is it like your family with these people that you went to space with? Like, is the bond incredibly strong? Like, do you have a group text? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we have a group text and we still text each other. And yeah, I mean, we, you become so close and, and it's hard because now it's, it's, it's like you grow up and then you move away from each other. 
And it's only on at holidays that you get to go get together and hang out. And, and that's, and you feel kind of sad about that, you know, because you, you've had this amazing bonding experience and you'll always be close. And, and what's nice about it now to some extent is there's the pressure is off. So you feel a little bit different about it and you can be kind of a, a little bit more uh, joking and, and be a little bit more uh, just kind of lighthearted because you're not worried about um, not making it or not um, or messing up in some extent. And so that's kind of fun. And, and now that Jared is flying multiple times more, you know, I love the fact that we get to champion him in that space and, and be like, this is amazing. Um, and what he's doing to advance humanity. I love everything about that. And, and so what, what's great about it is that we're just adding to the family and, and the people who are part of his new crew, you know, we already knew them. And so it's kind of like within the family, like, oh, you're so happy because, you know, Sarah was our trainer. And so you're just like, oh, my God, I'm so happy that you get to go because I couldn't think of a better choice. And, and so those are the things that I think are part of the family because the family changes and, and it expands mm. um, and you're there to be a part of that. Well, you're in the family of what one of the 600 people who have ever been to space. What an incredible <laughs> family that is. And uh, hopefully that family will be exponentially growing in the coming decades uh, here on Earth. But uh, Dr. Sam Proctor, thank you so much for taking the time, giving such wonderful answers and thoughtful your thoughtful approach to life. Where can people connect with you further if they enjoyed this conversation? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Cyan Proctor. That's D-R-S-I-A-N-P-R-O-C-T-O-R. Or, and it's the same for Instagram. Those are my two main platforms that I, you know, kind of connect with people, particularly Twitter. It's number one because I did win my seat to space through Twitter. And, and then also I have my new book of art and poetry out on Amazon. And so if you Google space to inspire, um, or I guess in Amazon, if you search for space to inspire or, you know, my name, although be wary that they want to change it from Cyan to Stan <laughs> and you got to kind of force look for me. Well, we'll put those correct links down below. Thank you, Dr. Cyan Proctor. Such an incredible conversation. So grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast with Dr. Cyan Proctor. If you did enjoy this episode, please go to your favorite social media app or go to your messaging app and send it to somebody you think would enjoy it as well. That would make my day. It would help grow the show and it would help spread the story of Dr. Cyan Proctor, who is incredible, as you may as well know by now. So thank you for listening. I hope you have a tremendous rest of your day or night whenever you're listening to this, and I will see you in the next episode. Peace.